Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Breaking Down Mental Health, with myself, nurse practitioner, Dr. Christina Swiner, social worker, Saima Khan, and child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Heidi Burns. We are joined again this week by Dr. Nasu Malis to continue our discussion about aggression in the pediatric population, with a focus this time on pharmacological interventions. For those of you that missed Dr. Mollis' introduction, Dr. Mollis is a service chief for child and adolescent psychiatry at the University of Michigan. He also serves as the medical director for the Pediatric Consultation and Liaison Psychiatry Service at CS Mott Children's Hospital. He has leadership positions in the Emergency and Consultation Psychiatry with the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and American Association for Emergency Psychiatry and was involved in the developing of the pediatric beta guidelines for the management of agitation and aggression. None of the speakers here today have any conflicts of interest or financial disclosures. We will be discussing medications today, which will include off-label uses of medications. This podcast does not sponsor and is not sponsored by any pharmaceutical company or product. The medications discussed today are based on the speaker's clinical experiences. Thank you, Dr. Malis, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be talking about this topic. Last week, we talked a lot about what can cause aggression, evaluation, and non-pharmacological interventions for agitation and aggression. This week, we're going to focus more on the pharmacological interventions available for the management of agitation. Dr. Mollis, when should medical providers and families start considering medications for the management of agitation? So there's a few factors to consider when we're thinking about medications as part of the treatment plan for somebody who's at risk for aggression or exhibiting aggression. First of all, it's really important to understand the family's values and perspectives on medication use to address any potential misunderstandings or uh, knowledge gaps that the family may have and make sure that the family is invested and on board with medications before considering that. You also want to be thinking about the nature of the child's underlying uh, physical, emotional, developmental, cognitive needs, because there are certain conditions that are more conducive to medication use and other conditions that may not respond as well. So being aware of that is helpful. The severity of the presentation can be also another indicator The more severe the behaviors are, the more impairing they are, the more frequent they are, it may require a combination of non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic intervention, as well as the specific uh, issue in the moment. So we know that there is underlying risk, um, risk before the aggression occurs, but that aggression is highly heterogeneous and diverse in its presentation. We covered that a lot in the last talk, Uh, but just being aware that in a given moment, things can change and may warrant medication use, whether it's as needed for that time or potentially adding that because of the given presentation of the child. Let's take a few minutes and talk about the common medications that we might use in agitation management of pediatric populations. Dr. Mollis, you were involved in developing the pediatric beta guidelines on the management of agitation and aggression. And we talked a lot last week about sort of the ideas about kind of what precipitates agitation, really being an investigator and sort of looking to see what 
contributed and caused the current state that the patient is in, trying to think about, you know, what state that they're in, what, what um, you know, sort of triaging them and doing non-pharmacologic interventions. But what do the guidelines say about the next steps once you've sort of gone through the possible non-pharmacologic options that you have and you maybe are still dealing with a youth that is in a state of aggression that's quite unsafe? What would you do then? That's a great question, and I, I think something that we often grapple with when we are managing aggression is is when to progress to using a medication or coupling medication with other interventions. Two things I just want to address off the bat. It's really important to constantly be thinking about what's going on diagnostically. We can't create solutions to a situation until we really understand what the problems are that we're addressing. And so uh, a child or adolescent presenting with refractory aggression or progression in their behavior may actually be due to a, a faulty understanding or a limited understanding of what's going on with their presentation. So that's first and foremost, constantly thinking about that uh, throughout the process. Additionally, we want to make sure that non-pharmacologic intervention is continued to be used throughout the process because even with medications, the actual gold standard approach of treating aggression and frankly any behavior is to continue to provide that non-pharmacologic intervention, both preventative and active intervention, as well as considering the utility of the medication. But once you've decided that you need to pursue a medication, again, the framework that we've used and we talked about in the last uh, series was really talking about thinking about what is driving that agitation or aggression and then selecting the medication based on the underlying etiology or etiologies that you believe in a, at a given time is driving that agitation or aggression. That may evolve over time. So you may initially see a child that you uh, identify as being delirious from a medical condition. The delirium resolves, and then they become anxious and traumatized. And so your management should evolve with that evolving understanding of the child. When we think about medications, there are a few classes that we typically consider broadly, uh, for the management of agitation and aggression, I'll name a few, and hopefully we can take a deeper dive on, on some of these. One class that a lot of folks are familiar with are benzodiazepines. They act on a neurotransmitter class called uh, GABA in the body, um, but benzodiazepines would be medications like lorazepam or diazepam. Uh, and there are a lot of indications for their use. Uh, there are some reasons not to use them, and we can certainly talk about that. Another class of medications that's commonly used are neuroleptics. Uh, we also commonly call them antipsychotics. I prefer to use the word neuroleptic because most often those agents are actually used for non-psychotic indications. So for youth that have mood, or anxiety issues, developmental issues, delirium. Uh, there's a whole series of different reasons why you might use a neuroleptic or an antipsychotic. Those would be medications like ciprazidone, risperidone, 
aripiprazole, haloperidol, olanzapine. There's a whole series of them, and uh, they're broad indications, and there may be some reasons not to use them. Other medication classes that we use include alpha-2 agonists, medications like clonidine and guanfacine. Uh, sometimes we use antihistamines like diphenhydramine or Benadryl, uh, as well as um, hydroxazine in some cases uh, where patients are distressed. There are some studies that show that stimulant medications in youth with ADHD can be helpful acutely in managing aggression risk. Uh, there are other classes of agents that are less commonly used, different mood stabilizers and uh, other agents that may be specific to a given population. Uh, but those just kind of give you a sense of the spectrum of different medications. And what I typically think is trying to have a simplistic model of what do you go to first, knowing the patient's needs, knowing the family's um, uh, information that they've given you about past experiences, what the situation warrants, but really kind of thinking about a few agents that you have in your toolkit that you can go to initially. And then as you learn more about the patient, and as you uh, observe that response, reflect on that, and think about the overall clinical picture, then you can adapt your management strategy so it's a little bit more customized over time. So, Dr. Mollis, you introduced um, a few broad classes of medications to us, but why don't we start taking a little bit of a deeper dive into those classes and talk about why you would decide like one class over another and kind of some of the benefits and risks with each class. So the first class of medications that you mentioned was the benzodiazepines. So we use these commonly for highly agitated patients, but what is the best situation to use a benzodiazepine? How do they work? And what side effects should a provider be watching out for? So it's a broad class, and each medication has unique characteristics that we should consider. So things that I think about is routed delivery of the medication. So can the person take an oral medication? Do they need an injection? Do they need to, the medication to be delivered through the IV? Is there a transdermal or a skin patch that can be used in certain patients that may benefit from that type of approach? So you want to be thinking about how that medication is delivered. You want to know what the time of onset uh, and time to peak effect is. Uh, that includes an understanding of the half-life of the medication. So typically after five half-lives, the medication has been completely eliminated from your body. And so being aware of that can help you anticipate how quickly a medication will act and how long it may stay in somebody's system. And so being mindful of that can be really helpful in pairing how you intend the medication to work to what the situation is. You also want to be aware of the people around you and their understanding of the use of a medication. So using a medication that's um, unfamiliar to a setting may actually cause some distress because people are just not aware of how to deliver it or what to look for. Uh, and then obviously thinking about what you're trying to manage um, can be really helpful. Uh, so in the case of benzodiazepines, common indications that we'll use benzodiazepines for, oftentimes any type of uh, substance-induced agitation. Uh, we have certain um, 
ways we can use uh, benzodiazepines. So one example would be alcohol withdrawal. There are protocols where when somebody's withdrawing from alcohol, which can be very dangerous, uh, can be sometimes life-threatening in certain people, using uh, benzodiazepines to be able to facilitate a smoother discontinuation of the use of alcohol and the uh, managing the withdrawal symptoms can be helpful. There are uh, psychiatric conditions, so severe anxiety, uh, when it's really impairing, distressing, and uh, involves aggression, may sometimes warrant using benzodiazepines. And, and frankly, there are times where benzodiazepines may be used either in conjunction with other medications like neuroleptics or as a standalone when the severity of the presentation is quite high. One thing we need to be mindful of with this uh, medication class is that some youth, uh, younger youth, youth with developmental uh, disabilities or youth with cognitive limitations or just frankly, uh, folks that have never been exposed to this medication class can have a paradoxical reaction where they can actually become more agitated and aggressive with the use of this medication. So we have to be mindful of that. Uh, and then there are other specific populations that we would not want to use this medication class for. The one that most comes to mind is youth with delirium. Uh, there is actually good data to show that using benzodiazepines in youth that are delirious uh, in the setting of critical illness or systemic disease, physical disease, uh, can actually get worse on uh, benzodiazepines. I think that's really helpful and brings to mind something that I try to think about a lot is that, you know, youth are not just tiny adults. Um, they operate differently. They're, they metabolize things differently. We can't sort of you know, use the same strategies all the time that we might use with an adult population. But that's very helpful to kind of think about the ways that we can use benzodiazepines and the certain specific populations that really would benefit and some that actually would be quite harmed from that type of medication. What about the neuroleptic or otherwise known as antipsychotic types of medications? What populations would we use that medication in or what situations would we use that medication in? The antipsychotics are what um, I referenced before as neuroleptics. Uh, those medications have wide uses as well. We have to be mindful of the use of these medications and, and be good stewards because there is a risk over time of developing significant metabolic symptoms. So things like weight gain, diabetes, uh, increased dyslipidemia, so there's a variety of factors that we need to be uh, cognizant of with the chronic use of these medications. In addition, uh, these medications also can cause uh, what we call extrapyramidal symptoms with use where you can develop involuntary movements, stiffening of muscles, and even restlessness called akathisia that can look like agitation but is actually a side effect of the medication. So I provide that caution because although there's great utility with these medications, there is also significant risk that we need to be mindful of. Uh, we commonly use these medications for a variety of different indications. One 
being delirium, which I talked about earlier. Uh, we don't want to use benzodiazepines. We do want to use uh, this class of agent if the aggression is not responding to other non-pharmacologic interventions and adjustment to sedation practices. Uh, another uh, group that sometimes may require neuroleptics are our youth with intellectual disability, uh, developmental needs, or sometimes our youth with autism. Uh, and so we uh, really need to think critically about whether or not that's indicated. Uh, some of our youth with mood uh, disorders, whether it's a depressive disorder, uh, bipolar disorder, or maybe a mood disorder where there are some psychotic features may benefit from this class of agent when they are distressed or aggressive. Uh, and that includes kind of a loosely defined construct uh, that uh, is getting a lot of attention from researchers um, is this uh, concept of emotional dysregulation where folks just can't manage uh, emotions. If they develop strong emotions or get distressed, they basically lose control of the ability to kind of manage that. And then uh, it manifests with aggressive behaviors. And in those individuals, sometimes we may use uh, neuroleptics or antipsychotics for uh, management. And then like just like benzodiazepines, sometimes the severity of the presentation, as long as there's no contraindication for use, may also warrant the use of uh, antipsychotics. Speaking about neuroleptics or antipsychotics, in many emergency rooms, it's common practice to utilize haloperidol or haldol. Why do you prefer olanzapine over haloperidol for pediatric patients? And when should we consider use of haloperidol? And how does haloperidol work? And what side effects should we be concerned about? So haloperidol is a medication that we've had in psychiatry for some time. Uh, and it, it actually has been tremendously beneficial um, since its development because it's provided an opportunity for a lot of individuals who did not have an avenue for therapeutic support to receive a medication that could help with a variety of symptoms, including psychosis, mood disorders, other behavioral disorders in the context of developmental factors or uh, just difficulties controlling impulse uh, impulses or managing executive functioning. Uh, however, it carries some significant risks. Um, one of those risks is extrapyramidal symptoms. So with uh, ongoing use or sometimes even with short-term use at higher doses, you can see some pretty significant um, extrapyramidal symptoms, those involuntary movements that can sometimes be very distressing for patients and families, as well as if we don't address them, can, can be more intractable and difficult to manage over time. In addition, haloperidol does carry some risk from a cardiac perspective in that um, for some youth, uh, it can prolong the resting phase of the heartbeat or what we call the QT interval. And if that occurs in some youth, it may put them at higher risk for arrhythmia and other cardiac complications. So we have to be mindful of that. It can also lower blood pressure 
and uh, it can cause some weight gain over time. But typically, we're thinking about these other side effects. The, the value of haloperidol is it does come in an IV form, and it does work fairly quickly. It does have a longer half-life, so when people do receive this medication, they may have the effects of it a little bit longer in their system, and ultimately it can be sedating, especially if you've never received it. So although it is helpful in certain populations, it can work quickly, there's different ways to deliver it. We've shifted more to what we call these second-generation antipsychotics or neuroleptics, like olanzapine or quetiapine, risperidone, because they have less of those risks. The risks are more related to those metabolic symptoms that I mentioned before, um, but they're generally better tolerated. And especially with olanzapine, there's been some head-to-head studies between olanzapine and haloperidol in the management of agitation and aggression, predominantly studies in the adult literature, but some in the pediatric literature as well that have actually shown them to be equally efficacious at managing aggression, but that olanzapine is much better tolerated. There's actually another study, a very well-known study in psychiatry called the Katie study that actually showed the use of olanzapine was one of the more well-tolerated medications in the class of neuroleptics and that patients were more willing to use it over time despite the risk of weight gain. And so when we're thinking about haloperidol versus one of these second-generation antipsychotics, we're thinking about what's the route of delivery, knowing that haloperidol can be given through IV and these other agents can't. How quickly do we need it to act? And knowing we can give it through IV, haloperidol may be required if you need immediate effect, although you can use some of the second-generation antipsychotics that have quicker effect, especially if you give it as an injectable, and then what types of side effects. And so generally, most pediatric practices are going to the second-generation antipsychotics and only rarely using haloperidol if there are specific uh, situations that warrant its use. Thank you for all that information on neuroleptics and the differences between our first-generation and second-generation. Let's jump to maybe another class of medications that you mentioned, and that's the alpha-2s, and maybe we can clump in the antihistamines since I think they go a little hand-in-hand there. So um, in in my practice, I I do use alpha-2s a little bit more, and you you will see throughout the country there is some variation. Uh, We do have the guidelines that were mentioned before, but there's still not wide consensus on the fact that certain medications should be used or not. So typically we're taking the evidence, taking these guidelines, and then applying our judgment to the specific situation and all those factors I described before and making a decision. So that's where alpha-2s and antihistamines can be helpful, just increasing our toolkit of options that we can utilize to support a child when they're agitated or aggressive. The alpha-2s, primarily we're using shorter-acting agents like clonidine or guanfacine. There are long-acting forms, but we typically don't use that for the acute management of agitation or aggression. Uh, It's important to be mindful that these medications can affect heart rate and blood pressure. So if somebody has a risk 
in that regard or has a cardiac history, you want to make sure it's reviewed with their primary care doctor or that they uh, don't have any risk that um, may be entailed with the use of these medications. But otherwise, the only other kind of risk is a potential for sedation. Uh, they're otherwise fairly well tolerated. They work quicker, have shorter half-lives, uh, anywhere from four to six hours, where um, they don't stay in your system as long. So that's sometimes helpful uh, for certain people where you don't necessarily want extended uh, exposure for the patient. Uh, they really work on uh, the alpha-2 receptor uh, centrally in the brain, and they regulate uh, nor uh, epinephrine, or what we commonly call adrenaline in, in the brain, to modulate that. There is some small alpha-1 effect. Uh, it's another receptor that's implicated in aggression. So um, when we use these medications, uh, you're really targeting those areas. And typically when I use these medications, I use them for youth that have a history of ADHD or may generally just have more impulsivity or attention difficulties. We'll use it as an adjunct medication in the management of delirium. We use it for folks that are going through opiate withdrawal in symptom management. We will also use it with folks that have a lot of anxiety because it kind of just reduces that sympathetic response that kids with anxiety have or kids with um, a history of psychological trauma. Uh, we also use it in kids that have physical symptoms. So we talked about sleep in the last uh, podcast and uh, sleep regulation is important. It's actually a very effective agent to help with supporting sleep uh, in youth that can tolerate it uh, and that can mitigate uh, aggression. It's also used as an adjunct for pain management. And there's some literature in the uh, pain world that suggests that it can really help augment other pain strategies. So I really like the alpha-2s because of the diversity of uses as well as the limited side effect profile. What I will say, though, is if the severity of the aggression is pretty high, I've, I've not seen it be as effective. It can be delivered as a patch which is another advantage. There are liquid formulations of clonidine. Uh, so there's a variety of different ways you can deliver it too, but um, uh, just a useful uh, medication to be familiar with. And then the antihistamines um, can be very helpful with anxiety, can be helpful with sleep, can be helpful with uh, just mild levels of distress. Typically, if we use them, we use them in folks that may be more medically fragile but not at risk for delirium. So some of our individuals with eating disorders may actually benefit because it helps with some of the anxiety around eating and the associated agitation or even aggression that they may have when they're uh, distressed. It actually can help a little bit with GI discomfort and has some antiemetic effect. It can be helpful for sleep regulation in some folks. And there's just folks who come in where they tell us that they've used it before and it's helpful uh, for a variety of indications. Things we need to be mindful of, they can be sedating agents. They can also have that paradoxical reaction like benzodiazepines. I've seen that most commonly in individuals with intellectual disability or autism where they actually become more agitated when they get those medications. They also can be deleterious in 
uh, patients who are delirious. Um, they have some anticholinergic properties that can actually make delirium worse. Dr. Mollis, you mentioned the use of alpha-2s and hydroxyzine in the case of uh, managing sleep. Are there other agents that you like to use or that you'd recommend using for help with patients who are struggling to sleep? It's really interesting because as a consult psychiatrist, one of the really exciting things that I get to experience is how people can see the value of psychiatry in the medical setting. And one thing that we can be very mindful of, um, not only in psychiatry, but in general in the care of youth that have concurrent uh, uh, physical symptoms or other physical complaints, is how we can utilize our medications to manage multiple target symptoms. And sleep is one of them. Another one that we uh, oftentimes are thinking about is pain, uh, appetite, um, nausea. So when I'm thinking about the patient, I'm thinking about their whole experience, physical, emotional, cognitive, social, and thinking about a medication that can target the most needs for the patient with the least amount of side effect. So in terms of sleep agents, there are some more traditional sleep agents. So one that we typically use quite frequently is melatonin, largely because it, the side effect profile is very limited. The only side effect that I have really heard from patients is they may occasionally have some more vivid dreams, but typically is, is otherwise well tolerated, can be obtained over the counter. The issue with melatonin is it really is only helpful for sleep initiation, and there's a large cohort of patients that don't respond to melatonin. Another medication that you may actually see a psychiatrist prescribe is trazodone. And trazodone is a medication that was initially developed to assist with depression. Didn't really work uh, for depression, but looking at symptom scores from patients taking trazodone, it was identified that sleep actually improved in, in that patient population. So it has now been used primarily as a sleep aid. It's one of the most common sleep aids. Things to be aware of with trazodone is it can prolong that QT interval that we talked about before, as well as can cause a very rare side effect in, in boys uh, called priapism. And uh, just need to be mindful of those things, but generally pretty well tolerated. It can help with both sleep initiation and management. There's a wide dosing range. And a lot of patients will find it helpful. In addition, there are other medications that we will use in certain circumstances. So we talked about the alpha-2s and the antihistamines. Uh, sometimes we'll use a medication called ciproheptidine. Uh, not commonly as, as much with psychiatrists, but other specialists may use it. It has some sedating properties. It is an antihistamine but uh, it is a potent appetite stimulant. It also helps with headaches and, and uh, as well as abdominal pain in folks that have a functional abdominal pain picture. So ciproheptidine can be helpful. Uh, sometimes we use um, other kind of sleep agents that are specifically designed for sleep. Uh, less so in kids, but agents like Ambien or Zolpidem can be used, but we, we typically try to not use it because it can create some difficulties uh, with parasomnias and other sleep 
related issues and can be habit forming. So there, there's a variety of agents we can use. Uh, one thing I would caution is there there is a practice sometimes of using neuroleptics or antipsychotics primarily for sleep. I would really caution against that because of the risk benefit profile of that medication and there are better alternatives. But uh, ultimately, I think it's about using agents that clearly can aid with sleep, but then thinking about the whole patient and how you may be able to treat other factors that may be contributing to the sleep at the same time. Dr. Mollis, would you like to just elaborate a little bit about, you know, um, why managing sleep is and agitation management are kind of intertwined and kind of the importance of that? So again, I think it goes back to what we talked about on the last podcast, that we're looking for any factors that are contributing to that multifactorial presentation of aggression. Uh, there's there's a saying that we had when I used to work in the emergency room at a, a different health system where a turkey sandwich may be better than um, giving a medication. Uh, factors like hunger, like pain, like sleep difficulties, um, and then just factors related to frustration with the stay or sensory factors. Um, those may be the main antagonists towards somebody staying calm. And so thinking about those factors and addressing them proactively can minimize the use of medications overall. Uh, I'm also a big proponent of using the least amount of medication to achieve the highest yield benefit. We don't want to just do isolated symptom management. We want to be thinking about the whole patient. What's their needs globally, not in isolation. And I, I think the difference between uh, effectively managing aggression and being ineffective is when we're just thinking about the uh, aggression in isolation. If we can think about it globally, I think we will deliver pharmacology that is much more customized to the patient's need. Dr. Malice, I really appreciate you reminding us to look at that entire picture. And I think we talked about this scenario during the last episode where we often have these young people coming in and agitation has been chronic and these families are exhausted. And I also like to remind care providers that parents too need to be cared for so that they can better care for these kids and maybe they need a sandwich before they can sit down and have an in-depth conversation with us about what's been going on, what's been working, what's not. I mean, I don't know how many parents we've sat down with and it's like, when's the last time you ate? Oh, it was, you know, 12 hours ago. Okay, let's get you some food and then let's sit and talk about what's going on and how we can be helpful. So I guess let's start wrapping up and see if there's anything else anybody wants to put towards our audience. Well, you know, Christina, I just wanted to highlight what you just said, which I think is really, really important. Uh, aggression is not just about the patient. It affects everybody who's involved with that patient's life, the school, sports, families, other providers, the PCP. And so being able to understand the context uh, in which that aggression is presenting will also make you more effective in delivering that care. A lot of times the stress on families is tremendous. It can create burnout. It can create very strong responses at times from parents where they can either 
um, become very avoidant or they can become overly involved where they're on guard all the time or anticipating bad things happening and it can create a traumatic response in the families. It can create a lot of mistrust with the health system. We've had families who come in who have certain rules that they need to follow or their kids need to follow. And if we deviate from that rule, the, the families get quite distressed. So it's just really important to understand that experience and attend to the family and the support system for that child. Because if we can help that support system, we can provide further guidance and partner with those caregivers and, and other supports. It creates more safety, more structure, more calm. And we know that for any child, regardless of the reason that they're distressed or agitated or aggressive, if their support system is calm and structured and, and feels safe, that helps them regulate themselves. Uh, if that support system is distressed, stretched, chaotic, that's going to make the aggression worse. And, and so I think it was beautifully said, really need to be mindful of that and not think about the aggression in the child just as the child being aggressive, but as a system that is stressed. And I think it just reflects on that point about safety, you know, focusing on the safety of the child, the family, and the care team as well that's providing that care, and kind of how can we collaborate using pharmacological and non-pharmacological methods to support them. Well, this has been a very dense episode. I just want to remind everybody listening that we have really just hit the tip of the iceberg and talking about medications that can be used for the management of agitation. Um, Dr. Miles, we thank you for joining us today and sharing your time and your expertise. Thank you to everybody who has tuned in. Nurses, social workers, and physicians can claim CMEs and CEs at uofmhealth.org slash breaking down mental health. You're able to do this anytime within three years of the initial air date. I hope you join us next time.